everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your Shal Behra. All right. So today we're going to be discussing the Joe Biden cabinet, and I'm very happy to have my friend Avijit Ayer Mitra to discuss the same with me. Avijit, thanks for coming on the podcast. All right. So before we, Avijit, before we get into the specific names of uh, the Biden cabinet, I actually wanted to uh, start with this. So before they were uh kind of having a discussion about what uh you know what the actual members are going to be like there was a lot of talk about what should be the makeup of the biden cabinet so the word they were using when it comes to the selection of the biden cabinet was it should look like america uh when they say it should look like america <laughs> they they say uh uh it should have a certain representation from the lgbt community it should have certain representation of uh, the african american community uh nowadays they use this term latinx or something like that uh, you know you can't keep up latinx. to the terms they keep coming up in america uh um so let's get that so so i was reading a few articles that so that they're already disappointed that the biden cabinet is not representative of uh, what actual america is so what are your thoughts on that so first let's get that out of the discussion and then we'll go into the specific names look uh from what i'm seeing uh in terms of domestic policy i'm cautiously optimistic uh in terms of foreign policy i'm positively alarmed and i'll tell you why because in terms of uh international policy uh uh you have um you know people like um uh what the nsa's name i've forgotten now um uh kya tha iska hang on one second uh, uh this fellow blinken, uh, right i forget anthony huh? blinken oh, no anthony blinken is the of state i'm talking about the yeah. nsa jake sullivan jake sullivan Jake so, Sullivan Jake yeah. Sullivan is a guy who has absolutely no concept of right or wrong he's been consistently wrong about policy uh you know he's the one that was te- giving us this harsh shit that uh supporting al qaeda would get rid of isis and you know when they finally found abu bakar al baghdadi he was hiding out with al qaeda So you know these are the kind of quack circles in DC that are self-referential. They'll never get called out. They basically keep saying you are correct, you are correct, you are correct when they're all wrong. And uh you know it it, it sort of becomes this whole uh, uh class uh, bukake cluster fuck whatever you want to call it. So uh uh yeah, uh, Google bukake you'll figure out I'm not explaining it. But uh yeah. So you have uh him then you have anthony blinken who is the worst kind of interventionist there isn't a single military misadventure in the past 15 20 years that he has not supported then you have susan rice who is a committed uh interventionist quite flaky uh you have uh, uh this other lady the redhead what's her name the former journalist turned policy wonk and you know those types really scare me uh 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 i forget now but she she was the uh, uh, she was barack obama's representative to the un security council 
And then you have Kamala Harris. Now, Blinken is on record saying nasty things about India on Kashmir. He's saying we will raise Kashmir. We will raise uh, 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 the CAA with the government. Uh, you have Kamala who has called for a military intervention in Kashmir. Okay. Uh, Susan Rice, Blinken, and uh, uh, this uh, redhead lady and uh, 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 Jake Sullivan, they all believe in military interventions. Okay. So, so I don't give about, a damn what When happened. you talk about the redhead lady, are you talking about Avril uh, Lane or something? No, 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 no not Haynes? Avril. Uh, Avril Haynes? Uh, uh, UN ambassador to the Security Council. Uh, let's see. Who was it? I keep Under the Barack Obama administration. Huh? Uh, she was under the Obama administration. She was the UN ambassador. It was um one second. UN uh US ambassador to UN to UN. Um list of predecessor. What who is her predecessor? Hang on. That's okay. Susan Rice. Um, I forget now. Uh, That's okay. We anyway, can, uh, there, we can do it. Yeah. Anyway, so there was this lady, and um, they've all been consistently been interventionists, and they're extremely scary people. And that's very, very problematic, right? Uh, now, I don't give a damn what happens to the US. My issue is that it accelerates the decline of America. And therefore, even if China doesn't catch up, the relative power of China will automatically increase because China's whole game is to bog down America in as many conflicts as possible. Imperial overextension, right? It's, it's like what happened to, say, the Roman Empire, which is fighting, you know, uh, uh, the Germans to the north, the Africans to the south, the Parthian Empire to the east, the Dacians and the Huns to the northeast. There's only so much that you can sustain with so much, uh, so many economic resources. So that's a very, very problematic side of policy that they're pushing them towards. Also remember, all of these people, some of them are genuine human rights intervention believers and some of them are extremely callous about it, like Jake Sullivan, who thinks of human rights essentially as a condom to screw over anybody you want to screw over. So somewhere between the opportunists and the uh, 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 true believers, uh, there's a very, very problematic uh, nexus out here. And remember, with all these people, they are all Eurocentric. Because their validation, their professional validation comes from Europe. It's that Eurocentric view, you know, that uh, NATO uh, post-World War Eurocentric view that created all these people. And they all have that same sort of racist white North Atlantic alliance idea. Mm -hmm. uh, which is why when you look at Barack Obama's Asia pivot, he spoke about the Asia pivot, but he did nothing on the ground, right? So it's it's a very, very problematic uh, cabinet. Now, there are two schools of thought. One is that institutions will hold back 
the personal excesses of these people. Mm-hmm. I believe in the other school that it's not that clear cut because you know what are institutions? Institutions aren't amorphous bodies; they're made up of people. People make up institutions, and we've got institutions stuffed with people who believe a certain way, where the entire leadership does. They're going to take you a certain way. You know, institutionalists, constructivists, if you want to call them that. I mean, not exactly, but anyway. Uh, you know, they don't explain how that when John Howard was the Prime Minister of Australia, they were happy to sell us uranium and they were happy to vote for us in the IAEA. They were happy to conduct quadrilateral exercises with us. The moment uh, 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 Chinese stooge uh, uh, comes in, uh, what's his name? John Howard's successor. Very irritating fellow. Um, white hair. R se naam tha na, I, am not I don't know, but John Howard's successor. Uh, 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 extremely irritating fellow. He's in the retired politician's cabal these days. You know, senior statesman. Of course, he's more like a senior dunce. But uh, 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 John Howard's successor. Let's see. Um, John Howard was succeeded by who? Kevin Rudd. Kevin yeah, Rudd. I just said R. Se naam tha, uska kuch, Rudd kuch tha, yeah, so Kevin Rudd, uh, extremely irritating fellow, reverses. He goes to Beijing and in Beijing, he announces that we are withdrawing from the quad exercises. He then cuts off uranium supplies to India and no longer supplies the Indian uranium plan. Uh, th- it was completely a personal peak of Richard Nixon that saw in 1962 Kennedy wanting to help India against China to Richard Nixon aligning with China, sending the Seventh Fleet to threaten India. Within nine years, that flip. You have Saudi Arabia, which has been implacably hostile to India, which suddenly identifies much more closely with India than it does with Pakistan ever since Mohammed bin Salman takes over. Let's call him Mohammed bin Sultan because he is the Sultan. I mean... Sultan ka beta hai. They hate the word Sultan, but Sultan ka beta hai. Okay. Uh, I can give you historical examples that are replete with this. Even in the Indian context, you know, non-alignment, the way it was uh, uh, for, foreseen, got derailed very, very rapidly because of people like Krishna Menon, who had a personal hatred of America and a great personal love of the Soviet Union. So he actually voted against, after condemning American interventions, when the Soviet Union invades Hungary, he votes against condemning the Soviet Union. And he gets away with it because Nehru was infatuated with him. Okay, so you have all these instances. I, I can give you hundreds and hundreds of instances across history where, you know, these personal uh, uh, character interventions have always mattered. Okay, Uh so there's, um, I don't buy this argument that institutions are going to protect the India-America relationship. Sadly, we are also at a point where the Indian economy is not doing well. Uh, all our economic reforms are stalled. There is no such thing as proper deep reforms happening. The farmers bill TK Chalraya, but other than that, you know, uh, it's license Raj back with a vengeance uh, and all, all of that. If when you're growing, everybody wants to be part of the growth story. When there are doubts about your growth, you are fair game. Okay. So you're seeing a very, very scary um, nexus of badly aligning stars. 
And that's very, very problematic, especially given that I've been saying for a very long time that there is a uh, sort of India fatigue setting in in uh, DC for a long time now. Now, let's look at the one person that you started with. So just to give people a perspective. So who is Anthony Blinken? He was the Deputy Secretary of State from 2015 to 17. Then he was a Deputy National Security Advisor 1315 uh, before that. And he was the National Security Advisor to the Vice President before that from 2009 to 13. Now, I was just looking up at this guy's record. And uh, yeah, you're right. So it seems like this guy... I don't get this. Like, under the Bush administration, we had the Iraq War. Uh, we had, uh, you know, the post 9-11 uh, syndrome. But mm. the Obama administration, if somebody was to ask me, I mean, okay, maybe boots on the ground uh, was old school. But I mean, at the end of the day, you're still attacking people, right? You're still bombing people. Now right. you change your strategy from uh, point from, uh, I mean, it's the, the argument I was always given up, but we don't have boots on the ground. I was like, you don't have boots on the ground is not because you don't want boots on the ground is because you can get away without having boots on the ground and you can still be equally um, uh, aggressive without having boots on the ground. It's like saying somebody, oh, why did he uh, not use a bullock cart? Well, he had a vehicle. That's why he did not use a bullock cart. So, so, that's right. so in this particular case, what you need to understand is the way war has shifted. Before, you needed boots on the ground to win a war. Today, you can win a war purely through aerial intervention. Right In Kosovo, for example, it was just NATO aerial bombardment, no troops on the ground that sought to it that Kosovo got its independence. In Libya, it was a pure NATO aerial campaign with only very, very limited, a few hundred or so commando leaders directing the rebels that won the war, same as in Kosovo, and got rid of Gaddafi. So you can achieve air, air power today because of technological advances has become such a precise tool. You know, they make it sound like they're doing you a favor or they're uh, making a great virtue of not putting boots on the ground. And that's simply not the case, right? So it, it so and it serves a very important purpose back home. It allows you to bomb and uh, regime change unrestrictedly, without costs and consequences to the government back. Because it's only when the body bags start coming home that the public turns against the war. See, for example, in Libya, nobody in America actually opposed the regime change, left or right. It was only when the embassy got attacked and the ambassador got killed and his body and his aide's body started coming home in body bags that it became an issue and Hillary was pilloried for it. So th this is the thing. It's, it's almost made war like a video game. It's actually particularly sinister if you look at it because it divorces you from the consequences of getting your hand dirty, uh, ha getting your hand bloodied and of paying a price for wars that you start. And that's very, very problematic. Second, uh, let's talk about the other leg of this. You, you know, showing you how, how much of this administration has quackery masquerading around his expertise. There's a video about John Kerry. John Kerry is now uh, this president's uh, um, special advisor on, no, special representative on climate change. But remember, he was a presidential yeah. candidate, a losing presidential candidate, and he was also foreign secretary. This is a man that we have on record 
saying that without a Palestine, there is no peace between Israel and the Arabs. And Donald Trump has proven that peace with the Arabs was absolutely possible. And he's con concluded more peace deals between Israel and the Arabs than the previous six presidents, starting with Jimmy Carter, put together. Absolutely. So it right. So it shows you the kind of quackery. Now, if you go to them, they'll say, oh, John Kerry, he's very nuanced. Do you remember he, he screwed up? He lost the campaign. Because people were always discovering how he flip-flopped. That was George Bush's biggest attack on him, was how he kept flip-flopping on positions. And the democratic explanation for it was he's extremely nuanced. <laughs> and nuance lost on the American public. Tell me, where is the nuance in peace is not possible, peace between Arabs and Israelis is not possible without an independent Palestine? Where is the nuance in that? There is so no nuance. What you're seeing is a accumulation of quackery, uh, masquerading around as expertise. Like my friend Max Abrams says, Americans want seem to want policy experience in government. They just don't seem to care that that the experience constantly getting things wrong. So what do you do? There is zero accountability here. Yeah. Okay. This is a perfect segue into another person that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> this choice is very interesting. If you ask me, let's go to Avril Haines. Now for people, again, I'm going to give their, them the details of the person is Avril Haines was the deputy director of CIA from 2013 to 15. And she was a deputy NSA national security advisor from 2015 to 17. In case people don't know who she is, she was, famously called the drone lady, right? She was the one yeah. who was in charge of the drone operations and the amount of people she must have killed, nobody has. So, so what do we do with is, her? Look, I'm actually okay with Avril Haines and I'll tell you why. Um, she is... Um, in, in terms of her politics, she is amoral, which is how one should be. Policy should always be amoral, not immoral, but amoral. I hope the audience understands the difference between that. She has no problems talking about human rights while using drones to kill hundreds of people. And let's be very clear, though, those drones have, in fact, made a a direct and significant impact in the war against terror. The problem is, and this we were always taught, you know, uh, uh, what we're seeing now, you know, the information age applied to warfare is called the revolution in military affairs, RMA, uh, because it's done things, it's solved so many problems that had, couldn't have been solved for the last 5, 15, 20,000 years of warfare as far back as it goes. But the excessive confidence that you have in technology means that you've been taking worse and worse policy decisions. On one hand, you're using drones to kill off Al-Qaeda in Yemen, in Pakistan, and all those places. And on the other, you're supplying arms and uh, encouraging the Al-Qaeda. Remember, Jake Sullivan is on record, the NSA uh, designate, Jake Sullivan, is on record 
writing to Hillary Clinton hmm, saying, Al-Qaeda is on our side. I kid you not. He's really written this. And this is the policy he advocated for Al-Qaeda to be made uh, friends. Uh, so, you know, you, you think that somehow technology can substitute for bad policy. And the classic example of that has always been India. You know, that very idiotic statement that Nehru made that temples are, uh, sorry, uh, dams are the temples of modern India. This is the classic thing. Dams, Bhakaranangal is such a disaster. Agar ye tumhara temple hai, then this is a lost religion. I think Bhakaranangal and the Aswan High Dam demonstrate everything that went wrong with socialism and went wrong with the socialist uh, big planning ideas. So what is happening is you're seeing that exact same India model, this belief that technology will solve problems of bad policy happening in America and it does not. So Avril is one of those people who will, she knows which side of her bread is buttered and she'll move where the general consensus goes. She's amoral, which is a good thing. I don't actually have any issues with her. Cold and calculating is the way I like it. No, but see, here's my, so let's say, so I'm going to try and push back here. But at the end of the day, uh, Obama and the Obama administration was uh, kind of portrayed as, you know, the the holier-than-thou administration, oh, how we don't attack anyone. But uh, I remember clearly reading a report where the, under Obama, the kind of drone, drone strikes that were sanctioned and that were going on basically did not happen even before or after that. I mean, it's not like under no. Trump, the drone strikes increased. So how can we say Obama is actually okay? So, right. So under Obama, remember what happened was he did not want to see body bags coming home like they were from Afghanistan and Iraq. So he orders a massive, massive expansion of the drone program. It increased manifold over Bush uh, because it like we and, you know, this is connecting it back to the Air Force uh, thing that we spoke about in Kosovo and Libya. It reduces the consequences. It's like playing a video game almost. You can achieve a lot of your objectives without losing people. And America's fine with that. So it was a great way of waging war without losing people. Which also means that you're much more tolerant of killing people. It's a very clinical decision. You do it on paper. You don't have to actually do it. Um, Which is why, you know, historically, uh, the thing that was made was that sedentary civilizations. Why was that? Because sedentary civilizations had so much division of labor that butcher ka jo class tha, they developed separately and they were the only ones okay with shedding blood. The other people had a natural sort of uh, uh, aversion to blood and they had to be trained in the military for it. Whereas pastoralists and nomads, everybody takes part in the hunt. So you tend to, and hunts tend to be like military campaigns in that sense, right? So they're, uh, 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 they don't wince at the sight of blood. They're quite happy to shed blood. And this is what you're seeing. It's the barbarization of American war making that you're seeing. That from a sedentary civilization, it has made the shedding of blood so painless and so, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, 
distant that you feel that that uh, uh, for you slitting somebody's throat or destroying a whole family is as moral an act as pushing three buttons on a qwerty keyboard is pressing buttons on your keyboard a moral dilemma for you no killing people with a drone is just as much of a moral uh, not a moral dilemma for you because it's it's a distant experience that's it it's like watching a movie almost and you know we like movies where lots of people die like kill bill in that last scene at the restaurant where uh, uma thurman go goes uh, uh, ape shit and kills off the one the mad 100 or whatever it's like that you laugh through the her killing of the mad 100 and there are audio transcripts of drone operators actually laughing while killing people so you know it's 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 a very um it's i i won't say sick see you know if i say sick i'm bringing in a moral judgment which is fundamentally against what i believe that war, war is amoral you can't afford morality in war so it's basically all these people if you look at it in the macro they think they are serving america and taking it away from the rot so called rot of donald trump in effect the mm -hmm. only person's long term agenda that they're serving is china because this kind of foreign policy is only going to bring america down a lot quicker true now let's go into the next name uh again we did mention him earlier on but i want to focus on john kerry now well again because i try and you know educate people as much as i can so john kerry's history is lieutenant governor of massachusetts 83 to 85 democratic nominee for president you guys remember against bush 2004 then again in between he was a united states senator from massachusetts from 85 to 2013 that was quite a long journey he was basically from and then he was secretary of state from 2013 to 2017 now of all the people till now that i have named this gentleman worries me the most and i'll tell you why this gentleman worries me the most uh, at least from an indian perspective i think he is bad news he's bad news from every angle possible i don't know from which angle he is going to be good for india i don't know about the american side uh, because i always look at things as how how's the, so my uh, moral compass works like this i look at when it, american politics says what it does to india then what it does to the globe and then the third and final uh, cascade for me would be what it does to america now i'm only talking about john kerry and his uh, potential uh, harm uh, probabilities to india so what do we do with john kerry i know he's going to be given a very weird sort of a ministry something to do, nothing to do with foreign policy and such but the ministry they have given him the cabinet post they have given him uh, is the council of economic advisers now if he's in the council of economic advisers uh unfortunately the donald trump trade deal could not go through with india right we could not do the trade deal with donald trump mm -hmm. so what do you think would john kerry be good for us special representative on climate change he's the special representative uh, he, on climate change yeah but he's also part of the council of economic advisers i think he is i, ah, I think it's cecilia rouse 
see that is a, a secondary role it's combining mm-hmm. it with climate change where the real damage can be done and i'll tell you why climate change has now become a religious credo theek hai mm-hmm. uh, if you don't subscribe to their solutions they will uh, ostracize you hurt you kill you whatever in america a uh, simple example the biggest fraud perpetrated on anyone uh, to date has been the paris climate change accord what was it it was a thing for old boys now is there a, is climate change real yes do you need to reduce emissions yes is india hiding behind poverty uh, not reducing emissions yes but that doesn't make the paris climate accord the virgin mary it is a completely corrupt bank it is like a, a oligopoly uh, oligopoly of all these retired uh, 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 intellectuals who get paid to preside over a bank deciding who gets carbon credits and who doesn't a former vice president loser called al gore being one of them okay now and people don't realize this they don't realize that this is one of those bureaucratic uh, shit organizations which actually does nothing for climate change proper okay and mm-hmm. the way they talk about the paris climate accords you need to join the climate Climate accords. You need to join the climate accords. No, you don't. You you know you can do climate uh, 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 change, uh, 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 amelioration, whatever, without joining the uh, climate accords as well. Just agree to a quota. You don't have to agree to a governance council mechanism. The problem, of course, is China. China cheats like hell. Now remember what Obama did to get China on board. They concluded a bilateral agreement with China. and like idiots we trusted china we believed china and india were negotiating china cut the uh, uh 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 pulled the rug from under us and then when india then begged america give us the same deals that we can increase up to 2025 26 and then or 30 and then come down uh obama said sorry buddy that deal is no longer on the table screw you get lost hmm. so now understand the way climate change is going to affect you a lot of idiots in india keep saying we don't have to go through the manufacturing revolution we will go directly to the information revolution and that just shows you the kind of idiots you have in policy making today it is an anthropological impossibility even countries like the uae and saudi arabia remember they got into manufacturing and then they moved into information they bought companies they bought technologies they bought local fabrication la di da di da and i use la di da di da again apparently i get lots of comments about my use of la di da di da uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, then they uh, transitioned into the information age this is simply not happening with india in information age you're producing cyber coolies you don't have the discipline of the manufacturing see people don't understand that the manufacturing age is not just setting up of industries it's a sole social churn that happens when you industrialize because industrialization doesn't happen unless the state gains a monopoly on violence you get your regulatory mechanisms right you get your investment mechanisms right it's a whole ecosystem the manufacturing revolution is a symptom it uh, it is not the cause okay so unless you you've been diagnosed with manufacturing you have, haven't met all the requirements right and they want to these idiots want to transition into the information age mai abhi bhi dekhta hu yaar i see people who should really know better talking out of their ass about these things 
So it is preventing you from moving into the manufacturing age because right now you've been trying to protect all your obsolete industries. You've not protected your uh, uh, climate change campaigns like Suzlon. Suzlon, I think, went bankrupt or almost went bankrupt. Uh, you haven't created a proper local solar manufacturing, whatever. You haven't even moved it to the green economy. You lose $16 billion a year in electricity theft, whereas those $16 billion a year could have been spent on four 2,000 megawatt nuclear reactors every single year. So imagine in the last 20 years, the amount you have lost to electricity theft, okay, was enough to build 180 nuclear reactors producing a total of what about uh, uh, 3.6 lakh megawatts of nuclear energy and remember manufacturing yeah, is an there. energy transfer manufacturing is energy transfer uh what happens is before before the sort of a fossil fuel revolution, the total uh, energy on Earth was what the sun radiated onto Earth plus thermal energy on Earth, which produced crops, which then fed animals. So when the animals ate crops, that was energy transfer. Then we used to eat both animals and crops, which was energy transfer. And the amount of work you could do was directly proportional. It was a proportionate triangle. When you unleash the chemical revolution which coal or petrol and things like that they, it happens in stages you have a disproportionate uh, 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 ability to automate and manufacture and things like that and you know i've noticed all indian historians romila thapar irfan habib they all get this so badly wrong they're talking out of their asses when they talk about industrialization they'll tell you mushidabad was industrialized you know having ten thousand people working together is not industry you replace 10,000 people with one machine that requires just 10 people. That is industry. Producing the same or many times more. That is industry. Not having 10,000 people working in a, a slave factory. That is not industry. Uh, so th there is this entire narrative of history, which means that you are no longer going to be able to enter the manufacturing revolution. So they say China was the last manufacturing power. There is not going to be another manufacturing power after that. And that is so true. There is no manufacturing power after that. India has, boat has sailed. And once 3D manufacturing, additive manufacturing comes in, all your chances have basically gone because we produce low-end crap and the first thing to get replaced is low-end crap because see, it's easier to produce a toothbrush with 3D manufacturing than it is to produce a phone. So first, all of India's industries, low-end industries will get wiped out. Then Chinese industries will get wiped out in about 30, 40 years time. Because China has failed and they will continue to fail to transition. But, you know, that is a different arc. Chinese relative power going up with uh, relation to America because America is uh, coming down with more and more foreign intervention and debt. Uh, China is not really going up. It's stable. But if you look at the differential, it's come from there down to there, which gives China more options. And then ultimately, even with that you know, kind of second rate power, the general trajectory of China, economic trajectory goes quite far before it starts collapsing when 3D manufacturing becomes this thing. The next thing is... Yeah. so. So you have no chances now of industrializing. 
these people are going to shove it down your throat because there is a personal financial interest of the because of the way the paris accord is set up for them to screw you over and prevent you from manufacturing more and more okay basically we're jacked now see here's the thing but i i actually am not as pessimistic as you are i'm worried i'll tell you why my my reasons for worries uh, are kind of similar to yours what worries me is that when a democrat comes into power and somebody like john kerry and uh, i mean uh, i call it the al gore syndrome where you know a bunch of western nations uh, come and start preaching to us about how we need to be you know doing this doing that for the record these people don't realize i'm, I'm someone who runs an industry in india pollution norms have tightened in india in my own lifetime of being an industrialist in india like having a factory running a factory you have uh, suspended particulate matter norms tightening in india every single year they keep on improving and it's not like oh everybody is not allowed us to, uh, allowed to get away with it no you have to follow norms in a major way in india so people need to get over this mythology what worries me is and i and i found this very interesting in uh, dr panagaria's book uh, when i was uh, reading it he said that yes eventually we are going to go to 3d printing yes eventually we will end up in those areas but by the time we end up in those areas the indian population will be flattened and actually start going down there is a significant downturn uh, the the curve for the indian population they say usually around 2050 our population is going to stagnate and from 2050 onwards we are going to start going down that's just the natural curve of the world the more a society gets educated the less babies you have and the more you tend to Uh, you know have lesser and lesser people and illiteracy is going to go on increasing in india mm-hmm. in this 30 year period what worries me is that there are many industries even today that i would i, I mean i'm one of them i'm part of that which are called low skill industries like i'm in textiles textile is a low skill industry where if you have minimal skills or you can get basic training like you run a machine and you know you learn some things you can actually do a lot now i'll give you a tangible example of something like this to, 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 on 5th of december there was an interesting article that said america the trump administration has basically banned all cotton imports not hmm. this or that all cotton imports from xinjiang this is the province where the uyghurs are being uh, tortured right so they put sanctions now abhijit this opens up the opportunity of a lifetime not <laughs> i i say this with full responsibility it op- opens up an opportunity of a lifetime for a country like india pakistan bangladesh vietnam i'm only going to name you four countries N- not even another country can come up with this opportunity because biggest reason being india and pakistan especially have the cotton crop i mean we grow cotton abhi jhakmara ke to hamare paas hi aoge but what worries me is that if these people who are coming in into the new biden administration are going to keep on pressurizing us on environmental norms in a crazy way we might miss this bus and that's what worries me a lot so what should the see, indian government do see it is intersectional pressure okay on one hand for example they say you know you need to respect farmers and uh, protesting labor on the other they say oh you're not giving land for our businesses land regulations are so high labor regulations are so bad uh, then when you try to discipline them or move them towards something else nahi ye bhi nahi karo so you know 
and this is my standard line at all these human rights conferences. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is? If you're so concerned about human rights, why don't you spend about $10 billion a year having a train the trainer program for the Indian police? They'll never do that. They're, because see, it's cheaper to give sermons than it is to do anything. And it's cheaper to put pressure. Uh, and they want us to direct our money towards their uh, interest sets in uh, wherever. So the problem here is, understand, cotton maybe. Why is China overtaken you so massively in textiles? It isn't because of the growth of cotton. It's because of the cost differential that Chinese labor is extremely productive. Oh, it yes. is to get things. So, oh, you know, yes. you can't overcome that. Right. Ultimately, cotton yeah. is from Xinjiang is banned. But how are you going to actually ascertain in a, in a finished cotton uh, um, um, uh, uh, dress from China... How are you going to figure out that this is from Xinjiang or this is not? Do you know what's going on right now, Abhijit? In the last two months, China is buying raw cotton in hordes from India. Yeah. Because I, it's just part of my Look, trade. So I know. Why this. does this surprise you? See, this, is, this isn't just, uh, I mean, zero surprise here because India's, the nature of India's trade with China has always been colonial for the last 10, 15 years. They import raw materials from India and they export finished goods with massive value addition back to India. The Indian so-called information age is entirely based on imported cheap Chinese shit. Right. Yeah. So not surprising at all. So this is what I'm saying. You failed to get onto the manufacturing high skill or low skill. You failed to get onto the manufacturing bandwagon. And trust me, boss, textiles, if they get 3D printing right, textiles will be the first thing to grow. Uh, to go. Yeah. Because you'll be able I to achieve a much more precise stitch with a 3D printed cotton frock than you ever will with the human hand. Oh, yeah. Right. I agree with it, you. But uh, what, what my point is, it's going to be a while. It It's not that far, Kushal. It's, you know, it'll that 10, 15 years is going to move faster than you think. Because even now, simple example, you look at the, because in the West, you know, in cars, hand stitching is valued. Uh, but if you examine the uh, machine stitched leather interior of a BMW or an Audi, uh, you will find it is far, far more precise than the hand stitched uh, 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 leather seats on a Rolls Royce, which is like, 20, 30 times more expensive. Okay. People just don't have the time and the money for that kind of crap anymore. They So, you know, once you machine make clothes, one, sorry, once you sort of 3D print clothes, you realize how many processes, how many people it gets rid of in between. It just changes the whole nature of things. If you can start applying, say, molecular bonding towards clothes instead of actual stitches, even the cut and finish of clothes becomes different. You know, it changes the entire garment industry in that sense. So I admit this is a while away. But, you know, that, that 10, 15 years, Kushal, it is not that far away. It's actually quite close. You already have a, if, uh, if you go to Pirate Bay, you can download a Fizzable, which is a program for 3D printing a gun, a working gun. You can only fire one bullet through it, but you can make a working gun. 
if you go, if you manage to find a VPN to install in your computer, go to Pirate Bay and actually download that visible and have a 3D printer. Yeah, okay. it's crazy. So uh, things are actually a lot closer. You remember when, um, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, you know, this uh, whole, um, uh, this thing, this um, um, Star Trek, the original series, right? Uh -huh. uh, this is what, the 80s. Uh, well, I saw it in the 80s. It might be older, but I saw it in the 80s. It was like, oh my God, they're talking to each other. They're having a video conference with each other kind of thing. It literally became possible in, what, 15, even before that. I mean, at a technical level, it was possible. The mass reach started in about 20 years down the line, Max. So it wasn't that. And, and now you're, you're facing this thing where technology is growing geometrically, not arithmetically anymore. So these things are going to happen much, much, much faster. All right. Now let's go into a bit of the local American scene and let's get into the economics aspect of it. So now let's talk about Janet Yellen. Yellen, sorry. So again, Yellen, a Yellen. bit of a background of Janet Yellen. She was a member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors 94 to 97 and 2010 to 18. Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors 97 to 99. President of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, 2004 to 2010. Vice Chair of the Federal Reserve, 2010 to 2014. And Chair of the Federal Reserve for 2014 to 2018. Now, personally, I think she's a good pick, right? At least for Americans. Yes and no. And I'll tell you why she's a good pick in terms of uh, having this sort of group validation. When the entire policy circle agrees that you're a great pick, I start getting very suspicious. Okay, because remember, it was people like Alan Greenspan who are still highly respected, who were ultimately responsible for the subprime mortgage crisis, which happened during Bush's time, but the roots of which were laid in Clinton's time. But nobody will blame Clinton. They will all blame George Bush for it. They won't even blame the finance secretary of George Bush for it. They will blame George Bush for it. Okay. And this is what worries me about Janet Yellen. If you've gone from great job to great job to great job, it means that, and, and these things, see in India, we call it uh, nepotism. We call it sifaris. There we call it ecosystem. And you know, somehow ecosystem is sophisticated and it's not corrupt but sifaris is a bad best practices so, so you should have explained it by saying toda kutta tommy sada kutta kutta <laughs> exactly exactly so i again look she may end up being a very good thing the problem is what do we have concrete about janet yellen that we can actually go on. See, if you've got a concrete plan, you would have ended up making enemies. The very fact that you don't have enemies, that Janet Yellen has been the most non-controversial appointment, also means that you've been the biggest ass licker around. You've been the biggest yes, or well, ass lickeress around, or the yes woman around. So um, I worry. I generally worry about the direction America is going 
And see, we've, the way we've structured this conversation is you've seen how the foreign and defense policy is bad. We've transitioned it through John Kerry into that climate, economic, defense, foreign policy nexus. Because, you know, climate change is now going to be American foreign policy. Don't forget that. It is going to be a very major part of American foreign policy because it has now become a shibboleth of American foreign policy or at least liberal American foreign policy. And this now transitions into Janet Yellen, who may be a good manager, but she will also, I don't think she will stand up for anything. If she sees things going down, she won't stand up and be counted. She will go with the flow. Uh, but uh, actually, if you look at Janet Yellen, even from the conservative circles in America, you've not seen anything negative about her. Like they, they have reserved their attacks on John Kerry. They have been very, very, you know, pointed in their attacks there. But with Janet Yellen, I, I mean, I was trying to read conservative critiques or conservative analysis. Like I could not find a lot of beyond the standard, maybe this, maybe that against Janet Yellen, to be very honest, Abhijit. Which is what is scary. She's the unknown unknown. She's the unknown unknown. So you don't know where she's going to What's her belief system. What is her approach to fiscal policy? There, there is none that we know of. Uh, she is like, uh, you know, the, um, um, uh, the um, no, not xenomorph. She's like amoeba. She'll fit into anything, any shape or size that you put her into. So understand, notice the common thread out here that we're seeing. This may be, it may end up becoming, I'm not seeing much color here. I'm not seeing too many Latinos or... Uh, uh, black people or uh, any of that here. But what I am seeing uh, proportionate to the American population. But what you are seeing is absolutely zero uh, ideological representation. It is 100% a representation of the American of the Democratic Party where it is. They have also cut out the woke idiots, to be fair to them. I mean, there is no Ilhan Omar acolyte or AOC acolyte who's going to be given a job. None of these uh, 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 squad jokers, as they're called, are going to be given jobs. But, you know, that doesn't make it any less dangerous. Mm -hmm. True. Now, before I start taking the questions of the live folks, I have to discuss this one name. This is my favorite name. And before, uh, you know, our friends in the West, uh, uh, I just want to let them know. It's not Neera Tandon. It's Neera Tandon. <laughs> so, yeah, I get very annoyed when uh, all the time. It's like Neera Tandon, Neera Tandon. She's not Neera Tandon. So Neera Tandon. Now, <laughs> just, I was just looking at her Twitter Twitter account. So as of now, the last check is she has deleted 1100 tweets. I am not making this shit up. She has deleted yeah, yeah. 1100 tweets. Yeah. So just to give people a background of Neera Tandon, she was a domestic policy director for the 2008 Obama general election. She was a senior advisor to Kathleen Sebelius, Secretary of Health and Human Services during the Obama administration from 2009 to 14, and now 
she is going to be the director of the office of management and budget now why so somebody might say kya kushal why are you discussing neera tandon i just have to discuss her because in the history of the human race very rarely have i found some people so insufferable <laughs> as much as i find neera tandon uh what are your thoughts on her <laughs> um i know neera tandon she's kind of like a well not friend but acquaintance so i don't want to talk about that because that's a direct conflict of interest uh let's just say that she's she's quite smart okay oh, she's yeah, not she's, uh, she's a she's a believer she's part of the clinton inner circle which anybody who knows the democratic party know that the clintons really control large sections of the democratic party uh at least the par circles uh and uh, she's an absolute very very close insider to them but she's not she's not an unreasonable person but she is a true believer and um the good thing i can tell you is she's quite the fiscal conservative she's not a socialist so um i'm actually quite cautiously optimistic <laughs> come on man i mean the funniest parts was she had made direct attacks on democrats she went through deleting all look she's very really open she, she, she look she doesn't hold back and that's what i really appreciate about her is that you know if she thinks you're talking shit she's going to call you out for it and i respect that because neera tandon is somebody who actually if works a lot of uh, negativity even on the democratic party and for me see that's a good thing because that means she actually believes in something and she's willing to get, call out and be called out for it um and i'm glad that she's not in foreign policy and she's in economic policy <laughs> i don't know man i i i just I, i've been following neera tan and this is not anything personal against her but i just find her views very very annoying and i have followed her work for a good decade now i've been following her like i used to get so excited ah good an indian in politics in america so let me follow her and then i heard her views i was like okay i can't agree with anything she says and then i used to regularly watch her on bill mar because she used to come regularly on bill mar quite quite a few times and then yeah so all right let's take a few questions now so Let's start with uh, okay. In my panel as well. Oh, uh, I don't know how to. No, no, I have all the questions. Don't worry. So somebody said, uh, "What are your expectations from Jay Shankar Ji's in the Indian diplomatic scope? What do you think? How do you think it is going to play out for India? And uh, at what extent?" Uh, uh, I mean, what, what do you think? Like, what, how is going to be the Jay Shankar and the Biden cabinet relationship going to be? Mm, I think he'll manage just fine. He's very good at, uh, uh, you know, uh, socially he's very good. He'll manage just fine. There'll be no, um, uh, because remember, the people that he really irked aren't in the cabinet. They're not going to be anywhere near power. People like Pramila Jaipal, especially. is not going to be near uh, power uh there might 
be something between Kamala and Jay Shankar. I don't uh, really know, but uh, I don't think he's rubbed her the wrong way. So you know, and and at this level, you know, you have to admire Jay Shankar for one thing, that he took a stand and he said, you know, I'm not going to just bow down and take you spitting on my country. I'm going to bloody blacklist you and you know shove some chilies where the sun don't shine and that's admirable um the problem now is our calculus of who was going to win thanks to covid came horribly wrong so we'll have to sort of cozy up be cloying but he plays this ecosystem game very very well he will use um every tool at his disposable to hug kiss and make good with uh, uh america that I, I don't think we should doubt him or his ability, his interpersonal ability at that at all. My only disagreements yeah. with him are on policy choices and outlook, not on his social uh, ability or the ability to kiss and make up. All right. So, okay. The, so you just mentioned COVID. So somebody did ask, do you think Biden would deal with the pandemic better? No, see, this is what I keep getting. What is the correct response to COVID? Can somebody actually tell me this? Because, you know, Jacinta Ardern announces a full-on lockdown. Everybody goes, yay, look at the New Zealand model. Narendra Modi announces it, and he's a fascist dictator and a clown. Okay, Sweden announces herd immunization. We're not going to shut anything down. And everybody goes, ah, Sweden, see what a progressive approach. Trump does the same thing. He's a bloody clown. He's mismanaged it and he screwed it up. Okay, tell me one country which, according to you, <coughs> has dealt with COVID without significant economic repercussions or health repercussions. Okay, it, it's, uh, it's kind of a matrix. So I, I'm not seeing this optimal model of COVID relief at all. So, so I don't know, but, but what I can tell you is it does not matter what Biden does. If Biden continues to do what Trump did, the US press will claim that he's, his uh, 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 COVID dealing has been exemplary. It's been extremely um, uh, scholarly and scientific. Yeah. <laughs> No, the best part about COVID is only Pakistan has done the best job. They did not do anything. <laughs> That's the strategy. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like Pakistan and North Korea. I think North Korea dealt with it the best. Yeah. The funniest case was that WhatsApp forward. North Korea, one case. Suddenly, after a few seconds, North Korea, zero case. Why? They killed him. <laughs> yeah. They caught him. So, final right. games. Yeah, so uh, this is a good question. How about the ongoing security and defense deals placed on the table with Biden? Will he punish us like the S-400, uh, like Turkey? No. See, our one ally in the U.S. is the Pentagon. And there's a reason for it. You know, The military in general tends to be very straight-faced. I'm either with you or against you. They don't do this double talk. They don't do this human rights talk. They're like, look, this is my task that the commander-in-chief has given me. I'm going to make it happen. That's it. Direct. So with the Pentagon, they accept our rationale. So the same reason that they have imposed CATSA sanctions on Turkey. 
and the very stringent and severe sanctions that they've imposed on Turkey for buying the same S-400. It isn't just a Trump decision to not impose it on India. It's a Pentagon systemic thing that they've decided not to impose it. State doesn't really get a say on it. This is a Pentagon decision. And in America, you've never really had a president overrule. So let me ask you the next question, Abhijit. So is Xi Jinping like the second avatar of Mao? And will CCP engulf Taiwan? What can India do to deter CCP? India, there's very little you can do to deter the CCP. Imagine the level of penetration they have achieved in America. Like Hunter Biden, we now know that all those emails that were claimed to be disinformation that CNN and co refused to cover were all absolutely legit and genuine. Right. Um, so if they've actually got the president's son in America, in a country where law and order actually works and regulatory mechanisms and a forensic investigation is so sophisticated, Imagine what, to use a Trumpism, what happens in a third world shithole like India? Okay, you don't have the investigative processes, you don't have the regulatory processes, you don't have the forensic investigation, you don't even have the application of mind, you don't have the independence of institutions in order to investigate any of this. The very fact that the foreign secretary, uh, the foreign minister, refuses to mention China after uh, 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 the Galwan episode should tell you a lot. The very fact that the foreign minister three days back says that China may lose a lot of goodwill. They killed 21 Indian soldiers and they have not lost goodwill apparently. They may lose a lot of goodwill. You yeah. figure out who's compromised and who's not. I think the level of compromise in India would leave people stunned. Of course, nobody will talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. But, you know, whatever. You want to believe this myth of na khaunga na khani dunga, it's probably me uh, tandoori chicken nahi khaunga, but chicken manchurian zarur khaunga. <laughs> okay, one more question. So, in, uh, so somebody has said India is passing through a kind of a time zone where the West has passed decades ago and now the West wants India to match their standards when it comes to climate uh, and free speech and all these other policies. I think especially when it comes to climate change. So do you think this is fair? Uh, the West has always had this problem of isomorphic mimicry. And this is the problem when you have idiots in policy. First of all, we talked about the echo chamber of dumb fucks. But you also have this, uh, 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 that dumbery extends to the lack of anthropological training. So this is a phenomenon called isomorphic mimicry, where you assume that all the base indicators are the same as your country. And what works here, what is sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. What works here works there. Okay. There you have a state monopoly on violence. In India, that doesn't even exist. You're a pre-agricultural society. To quote Trump, you're a third world shithole. Yaniki, and you know, third world isn't just being poor. It's a lack of human capital. It's a lack of regulations. It's a, it's crumbling or useless institutions. It's a whole plethora of things that goes with being a third world shithole. Right. And you're not actually looking at any of those things. 
So th this is what I said. These people come and say, well, police violated human rights. You know, they beat up peaceful protesters. I can show you video after video after video in France, in Sweden, in uh, 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 Canada. In America, they just shoot you. Okay, in America, they just shoot you. There's no question about it. But in France and Canada and, and uh, uh, Sweden, they'll beat you up badly, just as badly or if not worse as what that Delhi cop or whoever it was uh, swinging at the farmer did. He didn't actually beat him, but that's a different matter. Okay. So this uh, 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 sort of, uh, this, there's two aspects to the stupidity in Western policy. Um, and this, you know, is my pet peeve. On one hand, their impression of themselves and their moral and institutional superiority is very different from the reality. And the second, they believe that they have, and you know, this comes with a proselytizing faith, that they believe that they have all the answers for you. And it's usually a very dumb answer because they only think in their silos. Let me give you a simple example. I used to know a lot of... The, you know, till Fukushima happened, there was a lot of talk of the German nuclear renaissance. And that was that Germany's idea for green power was going to be nuclear energy like France. Because the cleanest energy is France, which has about 72 to 75% of its energy manufactured uh, by nuclear energy. So, uh, and nuclear energy is green, by the way, uh, believe it or not, it is, it, it, it actually is. So what happens out here is that you have this entire... Uh, um, uh, these German nuclear engineers, they were all, you know, absolutely 100% convinced that Germany was going to become the next nuclear power. It was called the nuclear renaissance and all that crap. And Fukushima happens. And I kid you not, my friends in Germany who made the stupid mistake of buying Japanese cars. I mean, if you're German, who the hell buys a Japanese car, man? Like you buy ja you buy German cars. You don't buy Japanese. But anyway, they buy Japanese cars and they go buying gigas to see if the car is radioactive. They don't even understand the 101 of what Fukushima involved. Okay. And amazingly, in conferences after that, Angela Merkel announces that, you know, nuclear is no longer part of the plan. They're going to go with wind, which is highly... Um, uh, wind is one of the most destructive energies you can use. But anyway, they're going to go with wind, solar and all that crap. Not crap, but anyway, solar actually works. I mean, solar is one of the better, solar and geothermal kind of in that matrix. Wind is the most destructive in that sense. So uh, uh, they say, you know, nuclear is no longer part of our matrix. And these same people that I'm hearing wax eloquent about nuclear energy before suddenly turn into anti-nuclear evangelists. And I'm sitting and thinking, BCMC, you were here at the one conference two years back saying the exact opposite of what you're seeing today. And the same fellow who was telling us that, you know, India is on the right path today. You are also going for a nuclear renaissance. Remember, this is kind of around the time when the uh, India nuclear deal was happening, you know, 2008-ish, uh, 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 kind of around. Suddenly, they're like, See, you're not going down a good path. You should learn from us. 180 degree U-turn and you should learn from us. We should learn the art of the somersault from them. Yeah. Okay. So this, this is the kind of policy quackery you see, which is highly, highly problematic. And, you know, 
this is when why I feel that when white people come down and give us these lectures, on one hand, they themselves don't have the anthropological training for it. And the problem is, even though you've got a very good case, your diplomats and your government servants and interlocutors aren't coached properly on what the problems are, how isomorphic mimicry does not work, and how to give it back to them in their own language and prove to them that they're a bunch of idiots. Yeah. I agree. So, yeah, it's 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 crazy. I I maybe I don't get it. It's I, I guess human beings are we're all fallible, right? So why would we expect uh, infallibility? So this is a good question, Abhijit. How what do you think immigration policies are going to be in the Biden? I think this is something where Biden might be good for India on the H one B visa. Thing. Um, Biden will see. Biden is very pro big business, so he's going to restore all the H one B and all of that because they believe that. America is built on immigration, which it is. It is absolutely. Uh, uh, I'm, uh, and you know, the Latino uh, uh, community will provide a lot of the votes. So you know, it's uh, even though India will benefit from it, the real beneficiary will be the sort of illegal migrants and things like that. That they'll go very soft on and you know naturalize them because it is the humane thing to do. Um, so yeah, but. Uh, uh, but, you know, I find it very curious that it's when people say it is good for India. How is it good for India? Everybody in wants to run out of India, yeah. Yeah, in the olden days, we used to call it brain drain. And all these little turds, NRIs are the worst kind of shits you'll ever come across. I've come across Delhi public toilets that are more tolerable than the NRI crowd, especially the 75% of them that vote uh, uh, Democrat. I mean, you really are a pile of stinking rotten shits. I, I, I'm so glad you've left this country. Please never come back. Get that surgery that Michael Jackson did. Change your color to white. Don't call yourself Indian. Don't call yourself Hindu. Just go to hell and radioactive waste that you people are. Just stay there and rot there. And now on that very positive note... Let us wrap today's discussion. Uh, Abhijit, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, let us hope for the best, man. Let us hope that this Biden uh, administration uh, is good for the world, is good for America, and is good for India, especially. Uh, what happens, we'll only know at the end of four years. But um, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast, buddy. Insha Ganesha, India will be safe. Alas, I... I am always the eternal pessimist. So joy Makali, joy Madurka. Thank you for having All me. Right. All right, guys. Time to wrap things up. If you like what I'm doing over here, you know the drill. Subscribe to the podcast. Like the video. Leave a comment in the comments section. Also, if you want to support the podcast, please become a member on the YouTube channel or you can subscribe on Patreon. And you can also buy the Charvak podcast merch at kushalmehra.com shop. I will see you guys the next time with another interesting discussion. Actually, I'm going to be seeing you guys tomorrow with Monica Hallen. Until then, namaste. Take care. Goodbye. See you next time. Thank you.